from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Welcome to Bike Talk. My name is Taylor Nichols. And I'm Nick Richard. Hey, Nick. Hey, Taylor. You know, last week on the show, we had Gil Pinalosa, and he is the founder of 880 Cities. And he talked a lot about aging in place. And it occurred to me that last week you were visiting your grandmother in Arizona. And this week I'm visiting my father in Michigan. And the idea of aging in place makes sense to me. And I've been here for a couple of days and I've been riding my dad's bike around, kind of helping him, you know, run some errands and get things taken care of. And, you know, he was driving a car up until last week. We just, you know, decided that he was at the age where he probably shouldn't be driving. And it just made me think of, you know, when do people stop driving and what do they do after they can no longer drive? Yeah, I Googled what the age is that the average person stops driving and it's 75. So your dad's beat the curve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't find the age at which people stop biking for some reason. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, my dad biked up until... 97, 98. He still has a bike here at the house and I've been using it lately. Last week we had Patty Weens, the Brazilian queen of the North. Is that her title? On Twitter, and I think yeah. she was kind of ragging on me, Nick, about, you know, taking it easy and riding in sunny California. Well, I've been riding in cold winter Michigan lately. It really is fun. I really enjoy it. But my dad's bike needs a little bit of um, TLC. Would you like some advice from a mechanic? Anne-Marie Drolet is back. Hey, y'all. How's it going? Great. Anne-Marie, you're a mechanic with Metro Bike Share in Los Angeles. You're here to give us some mechanical advice, right? And today's topic? Why is the bike shop always trying to sell me a new chain? I know the answer to that, Anne-Marie. <laughs> yeah, what is it? Because they sell bike chains. <laughs> Which is what most people would think. You know, they're trying to make some money and just sell more chains. Um, but I actually think it may be because you need a new chain. I would say most or at least a lot of riders don't actually maintain their drivetrain. So when that happens, well, it looks like your chain is stretching. What's actually happening is the rivets and the rollers are wearing out. And that will destroy your cassette way faster because the two shapes, the chain and the cassette, and even the chain ring, they don't mesh with each other anymore. So you're kind of destroying your equipment way faster. So really, you just need to maintain, clean, and relube your chain all the time. And if you don't do that, you're going to have to get a new chain way more often. Well, let me ask you, Anne-Marie, how often do you change your chain? I usually do it every 3,000 miles. You're not yanking my chain, are you? <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> That actually will change for different people, depending on how much you ride and the conditions you ride in and how often you maintain your chain. If you're not maintaining it a lot and you're in really muddy, you know, or sandy conditions, I'd say every like 1000 miles. So, you know, it could be like every six months. So it's definitely really smart to keep an eye on that. I clean my chain kind of um, obsessively because I want to keep my components nice. So definitely do that to keep your components nice and to keep your bike working correctly. Perfect. The last time Jim Pokras was on the show, we talked about does cycling have a drinking problem? 
what are the legal laws of drinking and biking, CUI, I think you called it, Jim. So Jim is back now with us to talk a little bit about what is legally required on a bike. Jim Pokras, welcome back to Bike Talk. Well, thank you for having me here, and I'm glad to be back here. We're glad to have you back. What is legally required on a bike? Well, let me just make a comment right at the beginning that um, everybody needs to understand that every state um, has different laws about what equipment is needed to legally ride your bike. So I'm out here in California, so I want everybody to understand that what I'm talking about is in California, what equipment um, you need to have, okay? But if anybody's riding in another state, I want you to have an idea of what you need to have um, that may be legal in that state versus here. Right. Let me start off with the brakes, okay? Bicycles um, in California need to have at least brakes which allow operators to execute a wheel skid on dry level, clean pavement. So you have to have brakes. There are some um, bikes that are made that don't even have brakes, but in California, you have to have them. The second you know, thing- Jim, let me ask oh, you a question okay. right there. How about a fixed gear bike? Okay, um, but it has to have brakes. Okay, okay so as long so, as you could stop your fixed gear bike making a skid, that that's legal. Well, the way the statute reads, it says that you have to execute a wheel skid on dry, level, clean pavement. Does it say you actually have to have a brake- mechanism on the bike or just that you have to be able to make your back wheel come to a skid is that what it said to read it um specifically here in california it just says that they have to be equipped with a brake which allows operators to execute a wheel skid on dry level clean pavement so i guess if you could you know do that um you know without a specific braking mechanism um and you know you would probably comply with that yeah, because you can make the argument that your your legs are the brake, basically, since you just right. lock them up to make your back wheel stop. <laughs> right. You know, so many fixed gear bikes do come with a front brake when you buy them. Track bikes don't. But a good fixie rider, which I'm sure you are, Anne-Marie, can skid with that back wheel. Yeah, yeah. It's a very um, crucial skill <laughs> for riding around the streets. Right. Next, Great. we go to the handlebars, which you see people, you know, with the ones that are down, you see ones that are up. Um, California's only requirement is that you can't have handlebars higher than a rider's shoulders. So the high riders, you know, that have these big high um, handlebars are illegal. Okay, the next thing um, is at night, bicycles must be equipped with a white headlight um, or a white light attached to the, to the front so you can see it at least 300 feet away. To the rear, you have to have a reflector or a light that you can see from at least 500 feet. You can have either one. And also on the sides of the bike, you have to have a reflector, a white or a yellow reflector visible from the sides and a red or a white reflector in the front. Next, with regard to seats, you sometimes see um, people riding bikes without seats. In California, you have to have a permanent regular seat. Um, and if you have a passenger under 40 pounds, you have to have a seat which um, retains them in a place and protects them from moving parts. Those are the requirements of a, of a bike. So if a police officer sees you riding a bike and you don't uh, comply with these rules, he can stop you and write you a citation. If you're not riding a legal bike and you're in a crash, you could be held responsible for not, not following the law because we're a comparative negligence state, which means they compare the responsibility of the person that injures somebody um, and the, the rider of the bike. So if you are riding an illegal bike, 
a jury could find you like 10% or 20% responsible for not complying with the law um, in a comparative state that it would reduce the amount of money that you get by the amount of comparative negligence. Well, those are the categories of, of things on a bike that there could be laws about from state to state. It's your lights, it's your brakes, it's your seat. And then there's a number of other things that are not in the law, but you know can have you know, significant impact, um, not only by the police, okay, because they don't know the law that well here in California, but if you have a crash um, where juries you know, find people responsible. And those are such things as, you know, wearing um, headphones. In California, you're only allowed to um, have a, an earplug or headphone on one ear. You can't have it on both ears. Um, helmets in California, if you're under the age of 18, you have to wear a helmet. But if you're over 18, um, you, you don't have to wear a helmet. And that's another area that causes a lot of controversy where people feel that, you know, they can do what they want to do, but if they're not wearing a helmet and they're over 18, it's legal. But a lot of people that take a look at this, um, they'll come back and say that, you know, it wouldn't hurt if you wore it and you should have been wearing it and hold you responsible for it. A lot of the police officers don't even know the law with regard to that. And I've seen a lot of, a lot of police reports that cite, you know, people for not wearing a helmet. The other thing is visibility, you know, with regard to what kind of clothes you wear and the visibility, you know, wearing bright clothes, dark clothes, white clothes. Again, there's no laws with regard to high visibility, but it's another area where, you know, use common sense and, and juries will take a look at this. And if you're wearing black clothes at night, they could hold you responsible for the fact that you weren't being safe. Um, the same thing with um, you know, lights uh, that, as I was talking about before, not having that on your bike. Just one last thing that I'd like to tell you about a, ca a case that I had where there was about eight or 10 people that were riding and they went through an intersection and um, a car came through a stop sign, didn't stop, hit one of the cyclists and he claimed that he had stopped. One of the people in the, in the group had a action camera, like the GoPros and things like that. It clearly showed that the guy didn't stop. Um, at the stop sign, and it made obviously a big difference in the case because we could show that he didn't. Another case that I had where a guy was wearing black um, and a police officer wrote him up as the primary collision factor because he was wearing black and it was night at night. Um, and again, as I said before, there's no there's no laws or statutes that say what you have to wear. But you know, good common sense says that you know you should wear you know bright clothes wear a helmet. My recommendation is that if anybody could have an action camera to have one um, because it really clears up any ambiguity with regard to how the other driver was operating his vehicle. If you don't have all the legal things that you need on your bike, then it can make a difference in a case. People's perceptions, maybe on a jury, of how you're dressed and all that may make a difference. You know, I don't want to tell people that they need to wear bright colors and, you know, have a helmet and lights and everything just to feel like they can get on a bike because that comes close to victim blaming. You know, if you're going to say, well, you got hit by a car, you weren't wearing a, it doesn't matter what the driver did. If they were veering all over the road, you weren't dressed in high vis, you know, but it could make a difference in your case. I, to I totally agree. And that's exactly right. So the only thing that I want people to know is you know, what the law says that you have to do, and then, you know, what perceptions of other people, but, you know, people have the right to do and wear what they want to, as long as they stay within the law. 
And if you as a cyclist do know the law, that gives you a lot of power in a situation where a police officer might stop you for some reason. And you could say, I am complying with the law. I've got a brake. I've got a front light, a rear light, a, a reflector on the sides. And like you said, Jim, the cyclist might know the law better than the law knows the law. I find that's true a lot, especially, you know, people that are enthusiastic and cyclists and they ride all the time, they do know the law. Okay. And, you know, they may not conform with the law going through stop signs and, and stopping for stoplights all the time. But on the other hand, there are certain states that are now trying to make stop signs, um, yield um, signs so that you don't even have to stop. You just you slow down slow enough and then yield the right of way to other traffic. California has been trying to pass that for the last you know, three or four years. We're all in favor of that, the Idaho stop law. Jim Pokras of Pokras and De Los Reyes, thanks a lot for coming on Bike Talk again. Well, thank you again for having me. So there was a brand new study out, Nick and Anne-Marie, about how bike training affects bike use. Now, that may sound stupid because most people learn to ride a bike when they're a kid, right? But this kind of bike training is not necessarily learning how to ride a bike. It's how to ride a bike in an urban situation. It was done by a multinational Bank, HSBC in UK. I don't know that bank. Do you guys know that bank? Heard of it. Yeah. They found that when they took people and gave them a, a nine-week cycling training course, that they were much more comfortable and they biked much more. Nick, you're an LCI, right? Yeah. I'm an LCI. Henry, are you an LCI? Not, but I, I would say I'm a self-taught bike ambassador. <laughs> okay, good. Well, what LCI stands for is the League Certified Instructor. And all it means is that you've taken these classes and you can teach these classes about how to ride in urban situations. And I got to tell you, for me, Nick, it really changed how I ride my bike in the city. And I think that's what this study showed. And it's really interesting. The Cyclomation Project increased cycling by three rides a week on average, and it improved their perceptions of safety, vitality, confidence, and motivation to bike. I wish more companies did this because it addresses so many barriers to commuting to work, like not having a bike or fearing for safety, lack of confidence on the road. And I've read of companies that pay employees to ride bikes to work, but this is comprehensive. So it, it seems so much better. Totally. It makes sense that people would ride more if you spent a lot of time training them how to ride. You know, there was also a study about active travel in low traffic neighborhoods in the UK. Also, why are all these studies done in the UK, Nick, and not mm -hmm. in the US? <laughs> I don't know. But a low traffic neighborhood is an area like what Gil Penalosa talked about last week, 20 is plenty, where you make cars and bikes travel at roughly the same speed. And they found that there was a decline in car ownership, a decline in car use, the study estimated that the health economic benefit of a low traffic neighborhood at 4,800 pounds, that's over $6,000 per person over the next 20 years. Yeah. And it also said that the cost to set up a low traffic neighborhood is 112 pounds, which is what? $140 a person, something like that. Low traffic neighborhoods provided high value for the investment. It's a really low risk investment in the community and it has huge benefits for people who live there. So it's a no brainer. There was also a really cool map online. I don't know if you guys saw this. It's at uh, closecalldatabase.com. And yeah. it just collects all the information of close calls between cyclists and hostile drivers. It's just amazing. And that kind of goes back to what we talked about last week with Matt Share about why are U.S. drivers so deadly? 
Not only cyclists, but local police and prosecutors can see who these drivers are. And hostile drivers are often repeat offenders. You know, the site is asking everybody to go register so that more people can be counted. Yeah. It says on the site that when there are drivers who are repeat offenders, that the police will be notified and there's more of a chance that there'll be something done. Oh, that's great. And Marie, you commute a lot. Can I ask you, do you get hassled a lot on the road? I do. Yeah. Um, I get... (laughs) I got a lot of gendered insults. Uh, you know, I get called a, a bitch and a slut, which that one's kind of funny because they don't know my life at all. <laughs> so, doesn't really hurt my feelings. But right. yeah, I think drivers assume they'll always get away with their bad behavior because there's a sense of entitlement and superiority and even anonymity. So I think there need to be consequences. Right. You know, having their license revoked, having their car taken away. Absolutely. This map was at the closecalldatabase.com. It's really interesting. Check it out. And if you get hassled, go there and put it in the database. Yeah. And there was an article out this week in the New York Times called The Land of Ferrari and Lamborghini Has a New Speed Limit, 30 Kilometers Per Hour. That's about 18 miles an hour, I think. That's amazing. 18 miles per hour. And it said, Bologna has become the first major Italian city to impose the limit on most streets, citing safety and livability. But it's too slow for some. Yeah, one driver was quoted as saying, it's like standing still. And no one takes a car if you're going to stand still. It takes longer than walking. It's illogical. It's exactly what we are saying you have to do. Make it easier, more convenient to walk or take other forms of transportation, especially in a city you know, that doesn't need cars cutting through. And it is logical. It's logical depending on your logic. <laughs> exactly. There was a time when cities were slower and we still got things done and then cars changed the whole landscape. But that means we can change our conception again of how fast a city is supposed to move, especially if it means saving lives and improving the overall quality of life. Right. And from that last study, saving money. Yeah, exactly. Our first interview is with Michael Kelly and Michael is the policy director at Bike Walk Kansas City. Have either of you guys ever heard of Verusa? It's an acronym. Yeah. Anne-Marie? I have not. Uh, then listen to this. Everyone knows that we're in kind of a uh, epidemic of, of street violence. And what I didn't know is that the bipartisan infrastructure law that was just passed by Congress, that there is something called VRUSA that hopes to address that. So today we have Michael Kelly, who is the policy director at Bike Walk KC. And I guess that's Kansas City, right, Michael? That's correct. You know, I hear everything's up to date in Kansas City. Everything's up to date in Kansas City. They've gone about as far as they can go. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> yes. Thanks very much for coming on uh, Bike Talk. Welcome. And I wonder if you could explain what VRUSA is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. VRUSA is an acronym for the Vulnerable Road User Safety Assessment. In short, the bipartisan infrastructure law requires that every state DOT must now develop this document. And and in short, what the document is meant to do is kind of give an overview for how states understand the issue of traffic violence, but also what are their plans to try to address it. Great. What are the issues around traffic violence that they found or that you have found at BikeWalk KC? Sure. Um, When looking at these documents, 
there's a, there's a pretty clear correlation in terms of the increase of crashes involving pedestrians and bicyclists. Um, unfortunately, we're seeing that while the number of crashes overall is is kind of plateauing, the share of crashes involving pedestrians, people on bikes, people with disabilities, transit users is increasing at an alarming rate. And that seems to be the case in states across the country. And that was certainly the case in both Kansas and Missouri. Right. But why do we think that is? I think a big part of it comes down to the way that we build our streets. Unfortunately, we have in much of the country built our communities in a way that prioritizes driving over all other forms of transportation. And the problem with that paradigm, that emphasis of speed over safety, is that it means anyone else is at an increased risk of bodily harm or death. And as we have continued to see, I think a emphasis on education alone. So education campaigns can only get us so far. I can only teach people to walk as safely as the sidewalk goes. So if there's no right. sidewalk, can't do that. If there's no crosswalk, can't do that. And what we are increasingly seeing is that it is not that roads kind of all over the place are are the most dangerous, but in many places like Kansas City, Missouri, for example, um, a small part of the street network is producing an outsized number of these crashes. Can you break that down? What does that mean exactly? Casey Mo is one of a number, a growing number of communities that have adopted Vision Zero. So Vision right. Zero for listeners is this idea that traffic violence is a public health crisis and that in order for us to address it, we have to look at it through an epidemiological lens. In Casey Mo, as part of developing their Vision Zero Action Plan, they developed what's known as a high injury network, where they basically take all of the crashes, injuries, and fatalities over a certain number of years and put it on a map to kind of see where are the most dangerous places in the community. And what they have found, using Casey Mo again as an example, is that about 16% of the streets in our road network produce about 64% of the crashes that we see. Wow. And is there a common denominator in those 16% of the areas? What we've seen, um, according to the report, is that it is oftentimes places that lack sidewalks, places that lack safe places to bike, places that lack safe crossings. Um, one interesting note for Kansas City in particular was that this was that they found that roads that are larger, so four lane and six lane roads, are significantly more likely to produce crashes than smaller roads. Right. And you know, you keep using the word crashes, but really what we're talking about is cars hitting people. Right. Drivers hitting people. Because we right. drivers hitting people. Thank you for clarifying that. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that we saw is that there is a very clear difference between the two states that we work in, because Bike Walk KC works in both Kansas and Missouri, the Verusas, the Vulnerable Road User Safety Assessments for each state were pretty stark in terms of how they compared um, when understanding the issue of traffic violence and how they want to address it. How are they addressing it differently? One of the big things that is evident from the start is that Kansas is really doing a lot more to improve 
um, safety for vulnerable road users. So Kansas uh, recently updated their active transportation plan, something they hadn't done since the 1990s. Their update to the plan is very robust. It um, features a big emphasis on things like complete streets design principles, mm -hmm. as well as doing more to gather data, um, not just when a crash occurs, but also in terms of things such as post-crash care. On the Missouri side, unfortunately, um, that state is one of a shrinking number of states that has never developed a statewide active transportation plan. So they have no cohesive vision for how they want to not only support walking and biking, but how they want to protect those users on their street network. And I think that comes through very clearly in their vulnerable road user safety assessment. And forgive me, I live in Los Angeles and I don't know that much about Kansas City. I have been there before, but the the river splits the city in two. Is that basically how it is in Kansas City, Missouri is on one side and Kansas City, Kansas is on the other? It's not quite a river split. Um, in terms of KC Mo and KCK, we have what's known as our state line road, which more or less separates not just KCK with KC Mo, but KC Mo with some of the other smaller municipalities um, on the Kansas side as well. So nice. KCO is the largest municipality in our region overall, um, but it borders a lot of other suburban communities, bedroom communities as well. What are the differences that you're seeing in the two cities in Kansas and Missouri? As far as after the implementations have been put in place with protecting vulnerable road users, are you seeing a large drop in death and serious injury or, or what's the outcome? It, it has been um, somewhat uneven. I will say that uh, Casey Moe has probably been the, the most proactive about embracing Vision Zero, but even with that, it has been it has been kind of a mixed implementation. There have been some things they've really leaned into, such as public education and some of those campaigns, but things that are harder but more necessary, such as infrastructure projects, have been a, a harder lift. And so I think that's a big part of the reason why, you know, places like Casey Mo continue to struggle is that even though the data is very clear on what needs to happen, we still, in many instances, lack the political will to do what we know is necessary to save right. lives. That's the crazy part, is that we know what works. I forget which one is doing better, Casey Mo or KCK. So, so I do want to clarify, too, that these are state vulnerable road user safety assessments, not cities. cities. So okay, thank you. They're, they're both included in these in one way, shape, or form, but they're part of what the states are doing. So I think it, again, speaks to a bigger challenge that advocates in Missouri have around active transportation in that we're still working to make this an issue in the eyes of not just the DOT, but um, elected leaders as well. And, and right. when you look at reports like the Vulnerable Road User Safety Assessment for Missouri, it's clear that we not only have a lot of work to do to improve our standing, but also to get leaders, decision makers on transportation issues to act in a way that prioritizes people who walk, bike, use accessibility devices, and ride transit. Right, right. Well, you had said that Casey Moe did all this outreach and learned a lot of lessons. What were the lessons that they learned? So Casey Moe had developed their Vision Zero Action Plan before the requirement for all of the states to develop their own vulnerable road user safety assessment. Right. 
And so the engagement and the lessons that they learned were, were one, you really do have to dedicate time to explaining this to the public. Not everyone is a planner or an engineer by trade. And yes. if you just, you know, deploy something, there's going to be questions, there's going to be pushback and concerns. I think the other thing is that there is there is a bit of a, a missed opportunity, I think, by communities to really invest in small scale improvements. And those could be things like speed humps, better signage, making it easier to apply for crosswalks from neighborhoods. Because when we do this outreach, when we have conversations with neighborhoods, with community stakeholders, one big thing that we constantly hear is, hey, there hasn't been enough, there aren't enough opportunities for us to just get the very, very basics of the infrastructure we need to feel safe walking or biking in our communities. Right. It's so wonderful to hear you talk about this and have these two cities so close together and be so different. One of the things that we always talk about on Bike Talk is the number one reason more people don't bike is because they don't feel safe doing it. I did read in your blog that most of the crashes were at urban intersections. On the Missouri side, yes, they that was one of the findings is that I believe it was 75% of crashes happen in urban areas or in a small, small portion of the overall number of, of counties in the state. I also saw in your blog posts that an inordinate number of the crashes were in underserved neighborhoods too. Yes. So this, this lines up with broader trends that places like Smart Growth America and others have been pointing out for years, which is that traffic violence does not impact all communities the same. If you are Black or Native American, you are much more likely to be a victim of traffic violence. If you are walking in a low-income neighborhood, you are much more likely to be a victim of traffic violence. And so we see similar trends play out in both Kansas and Missouri to varying degrees. Several of the communities that were um, more likely to see traffic violence in Kansas, places such as KCK, places such as Wichita, also have higher concentrations in their urban cores of underserved communities. And so these are also the places that have much wider roads, fewer uh, multimodal elements. And as a result, we are effectively forcing people who oftentimes can't afford to drive or are unable to drive because of disability to navigate spaces that were not designed for their safety in the first place. Right. And so it is both tragic, but it is also unsurprising given that we are not providing the resources for underserved communities to be able to move with dignity and safety in mind. Well, this is wonderful information. I wasn't aware of it at all. And, uh, and again, that's one of the great things about my job being on Bike Talk is talking to people like you and learning about this. And you said this is in every state. Every state has to do a VRUSA, Vulnerable Road Users Safety Assessment. One other thing I think listeners should be aware of is that it is built into the um, the guidance from USDOT that they will have to that states will have to submit um, subsequent versions of this. And so the oh, idea okay. is so the it's ongoing. Yes, it is an ongoing piece. Um, there is an expectation that they will learn that they will you know adapt um, based on the previous version and some of the lessons that they gleaned from their own research. How did you find it? How could people in Minneapolis, Massachusetts, California, Michigan, 
all over the country. How could they find their state's VR USA? One of the groups that we work with at the national level is the League of American Bicyclists. Yeah. And having kind of regular communications with them, they had mentioned, hey, the, the VR USA is going to be something that's going to come out. So keep an eye out for that. And so we had already begun having conversations, at least with the KDOT um, contacts, to, to pass that along to us when it was released. And so very shortly after it was submitted to USDOT, advocates like us were able to get hands on the ones for both Kansas and Missouri. If people are trying to find them, then most of the time, if you type in your state's name and vulnerable road user safety assessment, it should be relatively easy to find. And I'm pretty sure uh, the US Department of Transportation also has a page where they not only have kind of general guidance on what should be included in a uh, VR USA, but also uh, links to the various state DOTs submissions of that document. Right. Well, Michael Kelly, thank you for turning me onto this, and now all of our listeners onto it. Also, I really enjoy reading your 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 blogs about it and knowing about it. Michael Kelly is the policy director of Bikewalk KC. Michael, thanks for coming on Bike Talk. Of course. Thank you, Taylor. Michael made such a great point that. Verusa, the Vulnerable Road Users Safety Assessment, is a state program. And so the cities and the states, they have to work together if they're going to solve the problem. Something I took away from that is that even if the state makes an assessment and makes a plan, they might not necessarily implement the plan, kind of like what we've seen with our mobility plan. Exactly. And that's why you're going to have something on the ballot in LA to force the city to implement their mobility plan. I thought it was interesting that Michael said you have to explain everything to the public because if you implement it without doing that, there's going to be pushback, which we've seen. You've seen pushback on bike infrastructure? Would there be a bike talk without... Pushback on bike infrastructure? Bike lash. All right. So next interview, last interview is with Laura Mitchell, the board president of Our Streets Minneapolis. And Laura posted a thread about building community among parents on their way to school in a walkable and bikeable neighborhood. And my wife, Julie, interviewed Laura. Here that is. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Laura Mitchell and I'm a parent. I'm the board president at Our Streets Minneapolis, which is a nonprofit here in Minneapolis that works on active transportation advocacy work. Um, I work in the education space and I'm very passionate about biking and walking and dense, walkable, bikeable, public transit accessible neighborhoods. Watching, like looking at your feed and also like going to places that are walkable and accessible by bikes, a lot of people are out there with their families. And mm -hmm. speaking of our street Minneapolis, what have you implemented to encourage more families to participate in events like Open Streets Minneapolis, which you guys host, right? Yeah, I'd say Open Streets actually is what got me involved with the organization Our Streets. Uh, the first year that my family had moved to Minneapolis in 2019, our streets put on an open streets event on the street, literally half a block away from us. And having young children opened my eyes to what's wrong with our infrastructure and what's possible. And so being able to attend that event, which we closed down the streets to cars and open it up to people. We have lots of vendors and community artists and food trucks and, you know, activities around. And so seeing how much right-of-way space actually is in our streets and is 
pretty much off limits to folks who are moving around and trying to live their lives. You know, we, we aren't in a space where kids can just play in the street <laughs> in most places. And so when you have that opportunity to close down streets and actually experience how much space is there and what's possible with our public space, I think is really eye-opening for to a lot of people. That's the thing that really got me involved um, with the organization once I saw what was possible and wanted to have more change in my own community here in Minneapolis, throughout the state, and certainly throughout the country, the U.S. has has a lot of room for improvement when it comes to safe streets for people who are moving outside of their own personal vehicle. So at our streets, we do a number of different things. We have some current campaigns around some opportunities here in the Twin Cities to advocate for some really important change with some highways and streets that are up for reconstruction. So we have one around Bring Back Sixth. We're also advocating around Twin Cities Boulevard, which is um, I-94, a highway that, like many highways in the United States, cut through neighborhoods, destroyed a lot of neighborhoods in both St. Paul and then through Minneapolis. We're doing a lot of advocacy around that and reimagining what that, that space actually could look like. Another piece that's really central to my heart is we have been advocating and actually recently got some funding through, approved through City Council to do some pilot work around municipal sidewalk plowing because our sidewalks are public space and obviously pedestrians and sometimes people on bikes rely on to get safely to where they're trying to go to access public transportation. And when we rely on individual property owners, whether it's homeowners, landlords, business owners, to adequately and quickly clear sidewalks, we often find that they are not cleared sufficiently or quickly. And that can create even just one property on a block can make the entire block inaccessible for anyone, and especially for folks who uh, have any physical disabilities and mobility issues that can cause them to be challenged by having to, <laughs> this past winter in particular, not the one that we're in right now, but the year prior, we had some record-breaking storms. And I was walking my, at the time, first grader to school. And sometimes at intersections, we literally had to climb feet of snow that had been piled on the corner. And so that's, I think, a piece that sometimes folks who move around primarily in a car don't think about, but is really critical to being able to support everyone, including families with young children, to be able to get around their neighborhoods safely. I have like fireworks in my head right now, but all of the connections that you just made between people in different communities and how biking, but not only biking, but having access to space that's not car focused really drives community. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's not something that I had made the connection to prior to moving to Minneapolis. I lived in a walkable and bikeable neighborhood in Denver, but didn't have kids yet. And so I found that some of my biking experiences were just isolated to me by myself commuting to work downtown and then coming back again. And I will also name that like the story that I'm about to tell is not new or a novel thing. It's also not limited to like dense cities like where I live. There are definitely suburban neighborhoods that have close and accessible schools that can support at least some of the school commute and community building that I've been able to benefit from with my family, even if they don't have the other walkable components, like being able to get to stores, restaurants, or other essentials. And I also want to name, because I think a lot of folks don't know this, the number of kids walking and biking to school has significantly dropped in the last few decades. So like back in the 60s, we had in the United States around 50% of kids ages 5 to 14 that would walk and bike to school. And now that number is closer to 10%. There's a whole ton of reasons around that on the ways that we've cut highways through a lot of our denser city areas, which cut them off from different neighborhoods and spaces. And a lot of our suburban development involved more sprawl and more car dependency. But I found living in a pretty dense, walkable and bikeable neighborhood in Minneapolis 
I have had so many opportunities to connect with other parents. And so it started just from walking and biking my oldest to school for the last three years. And now our youngest is also at the same school. And through that, we would run into our neighbors who we didn't at the time know yet, but through many opportunities of walking and biking to school, we would either be on the sidewalk with them or find ourselves in the street or in the bike lane. I always joke that I like to make friends in the bike lane. And it's not just a joke. It literally has happened many times over the last several years since I moved here. Um, we, we just would have opportunities to chat. And so like, unlike when you're driving in a car, you can't pull up next to the person in the car and chat through the window, but you can do that when you're walking and biking. And so slowly over time, we started doing that with more and more families as we got to know them. Then it was like, oh, this family lives literally a block away. It would be very easy for us to coordinate a play date because I just have to walk down the block and drop my kid off. And as we started to like build trust that way, it started helping us with, you know, one parent had a work emergency and couldn't get to school to pick up their kid because, of course, our Ooh. school days do not align with our work days for the most part. <laughs> my kid's school is 8.35 a.m. to 2.50 p.m., and so a parent had an emergency and was like, oh, shoot, and texted me like, can, is there any chance you could pick up my kid? I'll be there in 15 minutes. I'm so sorry. And without having to think about car seats in a car, it was very easy for me to just be like, okay, I'm going to add an extra kid or two to my walk home. Easy peasy. <laughs> and so then when we had an emergency, we were able to ask the same favor and the favors as they worked out so well turned into not just emergencies but now like literally today I'm going to picking up one of my kid friends and she's coming home with us and going to play for a couple hours and then tomorrow my youngest is going to go to that friend's house which helps me to be able to focus on the end of my work day because I have fewer kids who are in the house with me while I try to complete my work day and the kids love it you know they get to have their play dates and it means anytime I'm at school, you know, the kids are locking up their bikes, then all the parents are standing around and we get to chat with each other. At the end of the day, we're standing there at pickup and waiting for the kids to come out and we get to chat and connect. And the benefit of being able to live in a neighborhood and the privilege of being able to live in a neighborhood like this, where so many of the families send our kids to the neighborhood public school and actively walk or bike there has just improved my family's quality of life in ways that I think I'm just beginning to understand. Wow. In this journey that you're on with your children right now in your neighborhood and your community, have you learned any like effective ways to help encourage families to incorporate biking into their daily routine? Mm -hmm. Being able to do it with others, first and foremost, is the biggest thing to increase folks' comfort levels. With a lot of biking, the research shows that the folks who feel most comfortable biking are like young, fit white men. And if you don't fall into that category, there can be so many barriers to safety, to understanding, you know, what's possible with biking. And all of those things can be helped by having someone else take you along the way. Just the other week, another parent at the school had this amazing idea of, we had a PTO fundraiser about two miles away from the school at a restaurant. And he was like, what if we go for a bike ride? We have this amazing new bikeway that's sidewalk level protected away from cars. And it connects to the Greenway in Minneapolis, which also is completely separated from cars. And so we're like, what if we invite other families to join us? We can all bike together with our kids to this restaurant for the PTO fundraiser. And it's like a win-win. Well, it was January 31st in Minneapolis, which typically <laughs> is not a super bike-friendly <laughs> weather day, but we've been having a very mild winter. But we also had to overcome the fact that sunset was going to happen while we were at the restaurant, and so our bike home was going to be in the dark. 
And so being able to be in a group, we had, we ended up having a great turnout of like 30 people or so in a big group. We brought extra lights, thanks to Bike Lane Uprising for their donation of those. And we're able to pass those out to folks who didn't have lights on their kids' bikes in particular. And traveling as a group, you're able to help support folks who maybe don't know all of the rules of the road and the ways to stay safe and how to navigate some challenging intersections and things, how animals will, you know, surround the young ones to protect them from predators. It's like all of the adults on our bikes were able to keep the kids, very young kids. We had kids as young as like four on strider bikes. It was a, about a five mile round trip, but we we're able to do that collectively and together, which helped to keep all of us safer. And I found that when you can have group bike rides like that and folks can feel more comfortable, then they're more likely to also do more riding in their own lives, even when they're not in a group. That's been a really important strategy. I also think I've been doing some safe routes to school work at my kid's school um, because we do have some infrastructure challenges with some unsafe intersections and some streets. That's a necessary component that I, as an advocate, am, am wanting to pursue and to take on with the city to try to figure out how we can change some of the actual infrastructure to support that. But in the meantime, having the opportunity to invite folks to join a group ride to um, help spread the word and the awareness and even just to you know, my, my wife and I will usually drop off or pick up our kids by bike. And so then other parents are seeing us do that by bike, which helps to normalize the fact that you can do this by bike. <laughs> I think that's that's a, a key piece too. When other people see it, then they're more likely to do it themselves. Wow. January, Minneapolis biking with four-year-olds right at dusk. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pitch black on our way back. It was amazing. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. Well, I can imagine having those like safety elements with the lights and having um, the parents around really, like you're saying, really like encourages people to feel safer during even the daytime when they're not with mm -hmm. a giant group of people, even they're on the bike lane or on the road, but in a designated biking area with their kids. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the PTO. Yes, yeah. Parent teacher organization. With the PTO, the fundraiser, and you have the open streets events. Are you collaborating with local businesses and organizations? Oh man. So there's a lot of opportunity there. I would say I'm just starting on that piece of things. Uh, for the safe routes to school work at my kid's school, there's a number of different grants that you can apply for. And I have applied for one that would give us the opportunity to have like a school set of bike locks, bike lights, helmets, cones, those sorts of things that can help make biking around the school safer and, and ensure that folks who don't have access to those sorts of things or can't afford them um, can borrow them from the school to, to help with those things. Even in a, a big biking city like Minneapolis, there can be a lot of fear of change when bike infrastructure goes in and when it sometimes requires removing some parking to make space for everything. And so even though the research shows that at the very minimum, bike infrastructure, even when it removes parking, is not a benefit or a detractor. And a lot of research actually shows that depending on the density of the area, it can bring more <laughs> business to areas. I think that business owners and neighbors and folks can be nervous about some of those changes. And so just like the PTO fundraiser, one of the things that we're really trying to do is connecting our group rides with opportunities to provide business to our local businesses. So like getting donuts from the donut place that happens to be off of the new protected bikeway, going to dinner at a place that's accessible by bike, making sure that we check out places that have a lot of available bike parking so that we can show them like, you build it, we will come, is sort Ooh. of the, the idea there. We're also really lucky to have a number of really great bike shops in the area. 
Perennial is one that's really close to my house and they've been doing a lot of work on education and bringing folks together. And so actually just there's going to be a Zoom call bringing together folks from all over for a cargo bike skills share. So it's just going to be like an informal space for all of us to talk about the challenges that come up when biking with cargo bikes, the things that we've found have to be helpful, the tools that we've purchased, the accessories, those sorts of things. And so I think the more we can bring folks together, the better. I'm feeling inspired right now. We have some infrastructure going in for more bike lanes on the main drag, quote unquote, here in one of the towns uh, near where we live. And Mm -hmm. there's been some pushback on it from businesses, but I'm feeling inspired by the kind of like kiddical mass, (laughs) getting Mm -hmm. the kids, getting the kids with their families to show that removing parking isn't going to necessarily take away business. Like, let's show Mm -hmm. you how we can bring more business. Absolutely. Here in Minneapolis, there's always reconstruction going on, but there's one, one reconstruction project going on in a pretty dense area that has a lot of businesses and the business owners are are pretty afraid of losing some parking. And many of them claim that if some street parking was removed, that they would not get any business. <laughs> my most recent strategy for this is to like bring my bike helmet inside anytime I go to a business, because I think when I show up with two young kids, and we're not carrying our bike helmets in because we just leave them on our bikes locked up outside. People assume that we're arriving by car. And the more we can show people are moving by bike, by walking, by taking public transit and make it visible. I think the more, again, it normalizes it. It helps open folks eyes to what's possible. And especially when we have like really strong infrastructure and like a connected network of protected infrastructure, not just painted bike lanes on streets. The, the more possible it is for more people of all ages and abilities to get around by bike. Especially in the dead of winter in January. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I will say that day was a very strangely warm day, but I my family bikes year round and that all it takes honestly is some studded tires and some basic winter gear that most people who live in cold places already have. So it's absolutely possible. Yeah. I took my daughter out yesterday to a local park to go biking. It's funny because you mentioned the sidewalk not being plowed and I had her on the um, sidewalk in the park. We had to stop because they hadn't plowed the sidewalk. And I was like, okay, I guess we got to ride in the driveway. And it was cold and we were mildly prepared. The whole time I'm like, you got to stay in between me and the the curb. You know, you got to stay here. And she's wanting to go everywhere. And I'm like, the safety is a concern, but changes can be made so that people of Mm -hmm. all abilities and necessities can be able to access these places or you exactly. know, just for, for fun or for, for work or for, you know, getting from A to Z. Yeah. And for recreation too, like I don't even talk about clearing bike lanes because Minneapolis already does that. And we are very privileged in the fact that the city, our public works department just takes on clearing our curb protected or elevated or flex post protected. Any of those bike lanes are already cleared by the city on the same schedule that they do for clearing our streets of snow. And I found that not only does that make winter biking possible, but there's also a ton of folks in motorized wheelchairs who will use the bike lanes because they're far more cleared than our sidewalks and less bumpy. And there's also just a ton of runners who like long distance runners, people who are trying to get a workout in and don't want to slip on ice and they will end up using the bikeways as well throughout the winter. And so I think it's just a a net benefit to everyone to have protected spaces away from cars that are cleared and maintained of snow so that we all can get around safely and have the choice of how we do so. I'm feeling really inspired by you, Laura, and all the work that you're doing there in Minneapolis. And I hope to hear more about it. Laura Mitchell, I hope to talk to you again in the future. Yes, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for all the work you do. So that was Julie with 
Laura Mitchell, board president of Our Streets Minneapolis. One thing I took away was Laura's statistic that in the 60s, 50% of kids five to 14 years old walked or biked to school. And now that number's closer to 10%. Yeah. You know, Nick and, and Marie, I, I mentioned at the top of the show that I'm visiting my dad in the house I grew up in. And my elementary school, my middle school, my high school were all close. And I walked and biked to school as a regular course of what we did. And now the cars line up to drop kids off in the morning and line up to pick them up in the afternoon. It's really changed. And Laura talked about community that happens when you walk or bike to school, but there's so many studies showing that there's also, it's good for being at school and it's good for your, not just your physical, but your mental health. And it even improves longevity to use active transportation. Yeah. So why is it so hard to do politically to make it possible to walk or bike anywhere? Because we have short-term memory. <laughs> Also, a takeaway from that is that biking in the winter is totally possible with studded tires. And in Minneapolis, they plow their bike lanes. That must be nice. Well, you don't have that problem, neither neither of you. <laughs> hey, I'm in Michigan you riding too. in the winter now, man. <laughs> Are the bike lanes plowed? Well, there's no snow right now because of global warming, <laughs> because of all the cars. Yeah. All right. Well, good show. Thanks, everyone. Taylor Absolutely. Yeah, if you like the show, you like us on social media. And if you're looking for a book, go to our bookshop. Ride safe. Hi, this is Stacy with a bike thought. Have you taken care of your bike chain? How about your brakes? How loud is your bell? Do you have your helmet? What will the weather be like? Do you have the right rain or snow gear? A change of clothes? Will it be dark when you ride? Are your bike lights charged and ready to go? What about reflective gear? Are you a confident rider? If you're hauling anything like groceries or kids, are you comfortable doing that? Have you had enough experience riding in situations like this? Will you be biking alone or can you find people to ride with you? Do you obey stop signs and traffic lights? Have you plotted a route that is not too trafficy? When you're listening to directions or music, do you only wear one earbud? Do you walk your bike if you've had anything to drink? Are your phone and GoPro charged to assist with documentation? These are the concerns when you are biking in the United States. Most of our listeners in other countries probably think we have OCD. Surely you've seen the videos of people in the Netherlands biking with their kids, their dogs, a friend hopping on the back for a few blocks. How about royalty like the king and queen of the Netherlands, of Belgium, of Denmark? biking on the streets of their capital, often with kids in tow and not a helmet in sight. And I still see the images of my last trip to Paris, my first time biking there, and I'm solo and carefree. Now, I'm not advising you to forget all of the precautions. Some actually make sense. I just want a world where none of us have to remember them. This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the law offices of Pocross and De Los Reyes, with offices in Los Angeles and Bakersfield, and serving all of Southern California. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat.
Put your feet on the pedals and ride it all around, ride it all around.